Hey everybody, thanks for being here and thanks for listening to another episode. I really appreciate your listenership. Please make sure that you share this episode with anyone you think would enjoy it or would appreciate the information. If you want to check me out on social media, my Instagram handle is at Natalie History. My Twitter is at Natalie Harpin and my website is www.natalieharpin.com. Thanks and let's get into the episode. Welcome back to another episode of History Matters, yes. So some of you noticed that I changed the name of the podcast and that is because even though I started using Happy Hour History um, on the podcast in late 2020, I did not go through the business aspect of making sure that I trademarked the name. So I have done that for History Matters, and so I wanted to officially introduce the podcast now as History Matters. Um, It feels weird not saying happy hour history, but, you know, the legal stuff is important. And so I didn't want to continue knowing that at any time, you know, somebody could, um, you know, send me basically like a cease and desist from using the name. So... Um, the history, the podcast is now History Matters. But, you know, again, thank you for being here for another episode. We are officially in Black History Month. It's important to remember that every month is Black History Month and Black history is American history. Black history is Latinx history. You know, there are so many ways and um, intersections between history. So it's important to remember that we don't just relegate things to neat little timelines, right? Like we should be studying black history all year. We should be studying um, Hispanic Latinx history besides just September 15th to October 15th. Like we have to get out of these like, you know, time frames only. But it is nice to have a specific time frame to focus more energy on those things and bringing those things to light. So what I wanted to talk about, as you can see from the title, of this episode is about black slave owners. And this is something that I have had students in the past like decade that I've been teaching ask me, you know, Professor Harpin, or then, you know, when I first started like Professor Pass, did black people own slaves? And the answer is yes, in short. And today I'm going to be talking about some of the situations that would cause that. It's important to remember that, again, I've done a whole series about um, the difference between race, nationality, and and ethnicity. I've talked about how legal statuses such as citizenship or class alliances are very important nuances, even when someone is part of a larger macro racial or macro ethnic group, because often their day-to-day lives are structured also around their class accessibility. So when the cases of, you know, black slave owners, it's important to note, as, you know, Larry Coger says in his book, Black Slave Owners, he focuses on South Carolina from 1790 to 1860, is that an overwhelming majority of the people who were, you know, who would be classified as black under the one drop rule, right? We've talked about that with the colonial era and how race was quantified. I've talked about that. But, you know, roughly 90% of the people who are considered black who own slaves actually are, well, 83%, excuse me, are mixed race. So they're half white, half black. 
And but 90 percent of the people who they own are darker skinned, like monoracial black people. So it's an important nuance. Right. Again, in the English descended colonies where the one drop rule applies in cases like, you know, what becomes the United States, um, Jamaica, Barbados, Bermuda. Like we've talked about these English colonized or these former English colonies and how like race still very much is quantified by a one drop rule. Those people are legally still seen as black in the eyes of the social world that they live in, even if they are legally classified as, in this case, like mulattoes or mixed race people. Um, they are not dealing with like white socialization, right? Because whites tend not to include mixed race whites in who is considered white. So because in these English descended colonies, mixed race people, like in the case of being white and black, are they may have a legal classification of being mixed, but they are still socially seen as black. So it's important to note that for these people who, you know, they don't see themselves, these people who own these enslaved people, they don't see themselves as like in any type of kinship, racial relationship with their slaves, right? Because they have an economic privilege and they have a citizenship liberty that the enslaved do not have because they are legal property. And so that's an important distinction I wanted to make before I continued. And also I've talked about this in the colonial era with regard to Latin America and how race was quantified in the Spanish colonies and the Portuguese colony of what becomes Brazil. But most of the time, the mixed race population, even in what becomes the United States, they marry other mixed race people. And so again, like they're specifically choosing partners based on phenotype, based on like their classification as mixed people. And that actually has a lot to do with like the colorism aspect in parts of the Northeast and in the East Coast. But I'm not going to talk about that today on this podcast. But, you know, when you look at the descendants of people who owned slaves and the people who had access to education or wealth, even people like who we know from like the progressive era, like Booker T. Washington or W.E.B. Du Bois, like these were very fair, complected black people. And often a lot of these people were mixed race, but they were still, again, socially seen as black by dominant society and by dominant like white ruled society. They were not seen as like half white. <laughs> they were just seen as like black folks. And because of that um, racial connection to their white, family, they were given more privilege to represent black people, even within groups of black people, which is, a, again, a whole nother interesting thing. I can maybe talk about it later, but I did want to talk about that in the beginning, just because I think it helps preface it for us to be very aware of like who owns who, and that just because they're classified by dominant society as all being in the umbrella of blackness that doesn't mean that they see themselves that way or that they're engaging with each other on any different terms than how like white slave owners would engage like their black slaves and you know we've talked before about how even in states that were not legally considered slaveholding states because they were in the West or they were above the Mason-Dixon line, for example, that didn't mean that there weren't enslaved people there. So 
we've talked about on the podcast before about how in California, you know, California, and especially now with the talks about reparative justice and reparations, you know, a lot of people flippantly say because they don't know history, oh, well, California didn't have slavery. And it's like, sure, on the books de jure, California was not a slaveholding state. But there were people who were enslaved who were brought into California and kept here as slaves. And because of the Dred Scott case, that meant that they were not able to be free just because they came into the state of California. So they were still held in bondage in states like California and even in states like New York. And so in the cases of people that own slaves, like I said, a lot of these people are going to be children who have white parents or excuse me, have a white parent. And so they may be released or I guess um, manumitted from slavery, right? They would be given their freedom. And then because of their access to the money from their parents, they could become slave owners themselves. And we've talked about this before, but the whole reason people came to the new world was for the acquisition of land because they knew that it was important for the acquisition of wealth that had already gone on in the old world, right? So between Africa, Europe, and Asia, like the crown and the very wealthy had already like, you know, and and in some cases like the clergy had already like bought up a bunch of land in their respective countries, civilizations, groups, whatever. And so the new world was a prime opportunity for a lot of people to be able to have personal land that they didn't have access to back home because it had already been bought up. And especially for people who didn't come from generational wealth. So in the case of like what becomes the United States, also people understand that in order to establish generational wealth, they have to make land ownership possible for their children. With slavery, that also meant that their children had to have access to slaves. So you have instances where people will leave slaves to their children so that those people can, of course, you know, do labor that will make money for their children's family. And I think I've talked about this in a previous podcast, and if not, I'll have to look it up so I can talk about it more. But even like white women, for example, were given slaves that they did not have to turn over to their husbands even though they were the legal property of their husbands like through the marriage contract or like the bill of sale right they didn't have to their slaves that they came into the marriage with were just strictly theirs and so in that way you have people who when they had daughters would try to make sure that their daughters could retain some type of independence or have some access to money personally if they needed to have it by gifting their daughters slaves specifically right movable property and I think I've talked about like movable property and unmovable property before right because generally speaking people would give their sons land because it's immovable property it stays under the family name in perpetuity and for the daughters they didn't necessarily always give them land but they would often give them movable property which in this case would include enslaved people and you also have people who were slave owners who were born from two black parents, but their both of their parents were free. So it's important to remember that in early America, you know, many of the people who were not enslaved, but were African were more like indentured servants. And so they, you know, just like other indentured servants from Europe, they did their labor. They, you know, for a contract period of time, usually on average five to seven years, 
they were given a small portion of land as part of the release of that contract. And then they were able to use that to build wealth that they could use to buy up other land and try to create, of course, you know, generational wealth with their children. So you do have instances where you have people who are monoracially black. They have two black parents and their parents were free and they're free. So you have people who are a few generations removed or never, never had the experience of being enslaved. And so for people who like that, who became slave owners later on, right, the connection isn't always the same because again, they're not thinking about it from a personal perspective. They're thinking about it from the point of view of like, I'm trying to make money. This is how people make money in this society. It doesn't mean that they are more or less, or I'll say it doesn't mean that they're more or less brutal with their um, slave property, right? With the enslaved people that are legally their property. There are going to be cases, individual cases where they are just as harsh, are more or maybe less, right? But again, it's important not to think about it in terms of like a racial solidarity type thing because there was no racial solidarity at that time, especially in like very early America. Once race becomes a caste system, you do see it more often. And even when it comes to social classes, you'll see cases where white people would advocate for black people who were of the same social class as them. So again, like the kinship networks vary on individual bases. It really depends on like what time and space you're in, which state you're in, what the socialization is at that time like how integrated the society is like there's a lot of variables that go into it so there's not it's not just as simple as saying that like oh well black slave owners would have been harsher or less harsh or just as harsh like that can't be quantified and I don't want to get into like the semantics of that but I did want to say that there is no like one size fits all for that experience of being an enslaved person and having like black people who own you legally it's also important to note that a lot of free black people bought their relatives from other white masters. So when you have a case where somebody was enslaved and they are given their freedom, or let's say they purchased their freedom because that did happen as well, you have cases where people will buy their partners, right? Like the people who they are in relationship, like husband, wife relationship with. And you have cases where they will buy their children but the laws in some of these states were changing so that they couldn't buy them and then free them. So let me, let me repeat that. You could buy, if you're a freed person, right? A free black person, you could buy your wife or husband. You could buy your children, your mother, your brother, your father. You could buy people who you know that you're family with, but once you bought them, that didn't mean that you could give them their freedom. And so when you look at the census records for some of these places, they're listed as property of the black slave owner, right? Quote unquote. But they're really just living like that legally on paper because they're not allowed to free them. Which again brings up that question about freedom versus liberty, right? They don't have the liberty to free their property that they know are their kin and their family, which is really interesting stuff. 
And some of these people, especially when they were married, they did have a marriage contract. So you do have cases where somebody who was a slave was married to somebody who was free. And I mean, like, they're both like of the same racial group, like they're both black in this case, like, for example, but like, let's say the husband is enslaved and the wife is free or the wife is enslaved and the husband's free. So they would purchase their freedom of their spouse if they had already had children, they would attempt to buy the children from the, from the master so that they could keep them all under the same roof. But then when the census would come through, they would say, oh, this is a slave holding person because like they have the papers on them. Later on, when you have census records also, it's important to note that a lot of people out of respect didn't say that they owned their partners or children. Like they didn't list them as their property as enslaved people, even though legally they were, right? And again, because of that loophole that they could not free them. So in some cases you have people who have legal paperwork on their partner, children, or other family members who they have purchased. But when the census comes through and they say, okay, well, who's in the house, who's the head of house, et cetera, they will not say that like, this is legally my property. So that's like the way that they're practicing resistance is by not calling those people their family, their slaves, even though legally on the books, they technically are. But for most people in this case who were black slave owners, they didn't buy people to let them go, right? You did have people who would buy their family to attempt to have, you know, again, control over them and control over where they lived and just to be able to live together as a family, right? Like that is an act of resistance because they're functioning in a society which will not allow them to free these people once they have purchased their contract. Um, but a lot of people didn't just buy other slaves because they meant to free them. So again, there wasn't like a racial solidarity aspect going on. You didn't have a large number of like free black people who were like, hey, let's save our money and let's buy up this family so we can free them or so that we can, you know, put them up in their own home and let them live as a family so that way nobody can ever enslave them again. Like that wasn't happening. And a lot of it is because again, like the acquisition of enslaved people meant the acquisition of wealth for many of these families. And so when you're living in a system that is reliant on cheap and free labor through you know, even in like the Northern States, like through European immigrants, you know, children working in horrible conditions to make money for bosses and in major cities, when you're living in an area where like slavery is, it's depended, well, excuse me, the society depends on slavery to keep money flowing in to make money for families and these other businesses where that is like how they make their wealth. They're not going to just be participating in this to let these people go. Like people understand that they need to get in the game if they want to make enough money to be able to continue that acquisition of generational wealth. And it's kind of interesting too, because, you know, I think that even today in like the 21st century, there are a lot of people who understand that, you know, they may have their own personal view of whatever part of the system, government, you know, housing, inflation, whatever, they may have their own personal views of it, but that doesn't always translate to how they actually do business, right? Because again, like we live in a society where even still acquisition of land means you can rent that land, lease that land, sell that land, pull money out of that land, whatever you need to do 
to make more money for yourself so you can sustain. It's the same thing then. It's just we were dealing with far less regulations and rules surrounding how much you can exploit people. And so I was mentioning the federal census before, and you know, there's an, a book called The Free Black in Urban America, 1800 to 1815. This is written by Leonard P. Curry. And Curry was sharing about how, again, federal census officials in their notes weren't making a distinction between slave owning and slave boarding free black people. So we know that some of those records are not accurate and slave boarding just meaning that like you may have had a black head of household who had enslaved people living in their house even when they were owned by another family. So some people did allow their enslaved people to live somewhere else, right? And they had paperwork on them, um, but they may not have had enough room to have those people live with them or maybe they didn't want to live um, them to live with them on their land. So they would be boarded up in other homes. And so when those marshals would be going around doing the census or like today, I guess we would call them like, I don't know what we call them, not agents, but um, you know, officials, right? Like Census Bureau officials. They're not making a lot of those small distinctions that of course now it's like, well, you know, how do we really, really know what the numbers are? Because those distinctions are important. But in the case where you have free black people who did have papers on their family members and again, could not free them because of state rules, you have situations where people didn't want to be associated with any slave uprisings. They didn't want to be associated with like abolitionist efforts. They didn't want to be associated with trying to like overturn the institution of slavery because it would jeopardize their living situation, right? It would make them more susceptible to like people watching them or monitoring them or maybe being much more persnickety about what they were allowing, you know, quote unquote, allowing their property to do or how they were operating, right? Like they opened themselves up to a lot more stigmatization and policing as a verb if they are believed to be interested in ending the system of slavery, even though, again, they are actively practicing trying to free their family members. But like I said, that doesn't mean that they're trying to end the system before they necessarily can profit from the institution itself. And, you know, there are also cases where you have enslaved women who are basically living as wives to the white men who own them. But again, like they may be in states where they can't legally get married. So I've talked about this before in previous podcasts, but interracial marriage was made federally illegal in 1691. So before that, again, I've talked about this, like people didn't care who you married. It was like, you're free, so you have liberty and what you do on your personal time is your personal business. But in this time period, you still do have people who are in relationships with people who are not the same race as them. So you have white people who are in relationships with Native Americans or Native Americans who are in relationships with blacks or Asians who are in relationships with whites, Asians who are in relationships with natives or, you know, like there's all that, those all those intersections going on with these relationships, but that doesn't mean that they can legally get married. So in cases where you have a white male slave owner, because of course like white women didn't have the same liberty, right? There are gendered differences here. That's a whole nother podcast topic. But when it comes to white male slave owners, they may free one of their slaves 
And then that woman would stay in the house and they can't legally be married, but they're having kids. And so those children sometimes were freed, right? Also, um, sometimes they're not. And that's a whole nother thing too. Again, it depends on what state you're in, because I believe even for Thomas Jefferson, there are, I had to read Annette Gordon-Reed's book, but there are perspectives that he did free Sarah, Sarah, Sally Hemings. There are, there are perspectives that he did not, but that he freed some of their children, but not all of their children, right? Like, so there's, there's differences, but you have people who like, they would free the woman, their children would legally be born free, but sometimes they didn't always have like freedom paperwork, like manumission. Sometimes they did. Um, and because these people aren't legally allowed to be married, they live as husband and wife. Everyone in their, in their social area knows that they're living as husband and wife and that these are their children, but it's something that like legally cannot be on paper. And the same thing happened in all other countries in this hemisphere. You know, I've talked on this podcast before about even Cortez, that he was in a relationship with La Malinche or Malincine and he couldn't legally be married to her, right? Like that was considered a huge taboo. But what he did do was he did have a son with her and he did give that son his legal name so that that child would have his inheritance. And like I said before, his children later with his second Spanish wife, um, Cortez's, he, um, those two children like made sure that the first Cortez Jr., who was half indigenous didn't get anything in the will, which is really, really sad. But of course, like they use the system to their advantage. They use the Spanish legal system to take out from the inheritance their like indigenous native brother by basically claiming that he was an illegitimate child. And if you've been in my class, you know, and back when I used to, I still show sometimes black and Latin America, Brazil, but you have cases where like planters would have children with their enslaved women too. And they would free that woman. The children would be born free. They may not have been legally married, but these people had money in their society. So people just didn't care. And of course, then and now you have the case where like wealthy white men could do whatever they wanted to do. Now, wealthy white women couldn't just have kids with native men or black men or Asian men without risking being killed by their society, losing their citizenship, losing their um, property and things like that, because there are gender nuances to that. But, you know, you do have cases like in this, with this research where you have people who, you know, have children on the record who may or may not be their legal property, but they are basically socially married, like in all but paperwork to somebody who was their black female slave. And what Coger talks about in his book too, Black Slave Owners, is that you have people who, once they get access to slave ownership, once they become the plantation owners, right? In some degree, even, well, I shouldn't say plantation owners, even when they become slave owners themselves, because again, they're not always necessarily owning a plantation. They may be running a business and using slaves as part of the labor for that business model. But you see that, you know, once they become slave owners themselves, that they start to align with like other white slave owners, that they now aren't necessarily worried about having any type of kinship or social network with other black people or community with other black, even black slave owners, right? Sometimes they are really adopted and are adapting to a white slave owning culture. 
And again, that's because their class access would give them access to those spaces. And so in those spaces, their color can mean less to the people who they are in class community with. And that's not a new concept. You probably just heard Queenie barking just now because she's being a pain, but it's not a new concept because, you know, we, we see that even today with people who once, again, no matter what community they come from, once they get access to some wealth, all of a sudden they culturally become like, they change their cultural socialization, right? Because of their accolades, because of their certifications, because of their access to positions of power and privilege and access and monetary wealth and just, you know, material things, you have people who sort of like turn their back on other aspects of their culture that before meant more to them, right? Or that before they were more associated with because they didn't have access to money. And I've said this in my classes before, like wealthy people, the color that matters to them is green, how can we do business with this person to make more money for ourselves? So they'll do business with people uh, from different countries who are different colors, who are different religions, because it's about money. It's about the color green, right? But for those people who are more working class, who are lower class, etc., these are the people who are told that the color matters or that that has something to say about the socialization of the person who is that color. Like the very wealthy elite who created the system know that the color that matters to them is green. So they have a completely different way that they interact with people. That doesn't mean that just because people have money means that they accept everybody because we know that that's not true either, right? It really is on a case by case basis and on a community by community basis. But the point is, is that you do have stories and instances where you do have black slave owners who are more culturally aligned with how white slave owners operate, behave, talk about their slaves, treat their slaves, etc. Just because they are black doesn't mean that they relate on any terms of understanding with the people who are legally their property. Because to them, the distinction of citizenship, the distinction of class access means more and more to them with more acquisitions of wealth in many cases and in a lot of cases and in individual cases. So I did want to say that that's part of the aspect as well. And like I was saying before, you have cases where even you have white slaveholding men who are having children with a black female slave, a black female slave that they have, that they're living in basically a common law marriage with, but they're not legally always able to free their children, right? Sometimes they're not even legally able to free the woman who's living as their wife. So that's like part of the equation as well. And a lot of that has to do with like states' rights. And I always say it like that because Again, people talk about states' rights, especially as they relate to like race relations and now with about like women's body autonomy. But states' rights are a really big thing in American history because different states have different rules. And even in some cases where somebody was free, that may mean that they have to leave the state in order to free themselves. And people don't always want to have to leave. Just like now, like people have kinship networks, they have employment, they have lives centered where they're from. 
And so leaving isn't always an option. And even then and now it costs money to leave. So you're also dealing with people who may not have the monetary means to leave because they've spent their money buying their children, buying their spouses, buying other members of the family so they could at least live socially as free as they can within that system. So one book to definitely check out, like I said, is Black Slave Owners. It's um, the subtitle is Free Black Slave Masters in South Carolina, 1790 to 1860. That's by Larry Koger, K-O-G-E-R. There are lots of appendices in the book that um, are from census records that give a lot of detailed statistics and facts that really help shed light on this little known history. I feel like you know these aren't things that I learned about in school, which is why I like to talk about them on the podcast. So again, thank you everybody for listening. I, you know, appreciate you sharing the episode with anybody who you think may appreciate it or benefit from it. Definitely check out more resources. Um, I always advocate too for when you're reading any of these books, looking through the index and really seeing the sources that the authors are using also, because that's a great way to expand your research to get more information on like the sources that were available at the time, because I believe this book was written in 1985. So there's going to be updated records. Of course, there's going to be a lot more scholarship on the topic. And but it's a great place to start. And it's a great place to use as like a research reference. So please share the episode with anyone you think will like it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, as always for listening. And I will see you in the next episode, y'all. Bye. (laughs) 